by Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have A Nightmare on Elm Street, starring Heather Langenkamp, Johnny Depp, Ronnie Blakely, John Saxon, and Robert England, directed by Wes Craven. Hey, that was pretty good, huh? It was pretty damn good. Excellent. <laughs> Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Uh, you know, we're going to be reviewing film two in the cask of the slasher starter pack. And, you know, last week we looked at Friday the 13th. That was a fun review. It was a fun listen. Uh, and we're going to keep that train moving along here with uh, Nightmare on Elm Street from 1984, uh, the Wes Craven vehicle that gave uh, the world Freddy Krueger. It's, it's a stiff drink you got there, man. Jesus, I think I just poured a triple. <laughs> there, you, there you go. I'll even it. I'll, I'll I'll even it out so we're even. Okay. But uh, it's the film that gave the world uh, Freddy Krueger, and I can't wait to talk about the character and this kind of origin film. But um, yeah, cheers to you, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. Yeah, Some go. more of the Wolcott. Yeah. Does it say anywhere where this is made? Louisville, Louisville, Kentucky. There you go. This has a. Did you leave this at the bar by the window in your kitchen? Mm-hmm. It's got a little bit of um, room temperature chill to it, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. Which is kind of nice. <laughs> exactly. The times, uh, the temperatures, they are a change, and hmm. yeah, that's that's real good stuff. Yeah, folks, that's a a really shockingly inexpensive mm-hmm. bottle of bourbon that is quite terrific would you pay for that under 30 that's pretty good yeah well, usually we have that we have the price point discussion right <laughs> try not to go under 40 yeah we do but the guy talked me into this and i gave it a test drive and it's awesome i love it that's a good one excellent we've yet to have a bad bottle of bourbon yes yeah everyone keeps saying when are you gonna do a bad bad movies and bad bourbon I'm like we'll do it but like Torture us later, please. Exactly. Like yeah. that would be fun. The rot gut cast. The rot straight rot. Just gut. just hell for like three weeks. <laughs> yeah. But it's been fun talking about horror with you. The past couple of weeks we did a little midweek shot. If you haven't listened to that, go check out when we rank uh, what we think are the top ten horror films of all time. I love talking about Freaks and Black Christmas and a lot of those films, especially you know Rosemary's Baby kind of really got us talking. Can I can I tell the viewers and viewers yeah. listeners and mm-hmm. you one thing? Mm-hmm. So we went to go see Double Tap last night, mm-hmm. and uh, it's a pretty reheated pedestrian version of the first one. So yeah. I guess if you love the first one, you'll won't be let down it's just it was a call minus to well plus movie for me but that's not the point okay trailers yeah. right? the turning mm-hmm. finn wolfhard the gal that's in terminator dark fate mm-hmm. in a remake of a movie that you love love mm-hmm. the innocence based on henry james turn of the screw it, and, I, and I, I which i think has ties to the next season on netflix a haunting it? of hill house i was just right. gonna say i think they're doing that again Wow, are they gonna like overuse that idea in the next year? <laughs> like, it's funny. I picked up on on uh, Twitter this week. It's a movie, like a classic movie feed, and it was of all things the picture mm-hmm. in the hallway with the candelabra. Yeah, um, as she's hearing the voices <clears throat> sort of spinning around in the innocence, mm-hmm. and so then that popped up, which then got me thinking about the innocence, and that was. Of the movies we mentioned that you should see that haven't been seen, yeah, I would recommend that. Now it's British and it's period and it's fairly slow, yeah. But I do think the relationship between the governess and Miles in particular mm-hmm. is one of the more uncomfortable ones. Yeah, definitely has a tone. 
you guys should see The Innocents, and I'm actually really looking forward to the turning. Yeah, we'll have to check that out. Yeah. Horror's on the cusp it'd be of a interesting. big explosion. Yeah, it? it'd be interesting to kind of compare The Innocents, The Turning, and then whatever they do in that season two of The Haunting of Hill House. That could be an interesting compare and contrast. Yeah. Excellent. Well, let's get right into it, Matt. Let's get into the flight. I had a lot of fun with this one, as I tend to with these questions. So... Nightmare on Elm Street actually has some of my favorite death scenes in it. You know, the Johnny Depp, you know, uh, bed, bed geyser. Reverse geyser, yeah. Yeah, and then Tina's death and, and everything. Like, some real creative kind of uses and some real ingenuity um, on the set to make those happen. So my question to you, Matt, is what are the top three horror film deaths that have stuck with you the most? It's hard not to immediately go to the movie or the genre that we're per- currently doing. Mm-hmm. But actually, for this, none of my three are going to make the slasher horror genre. Okay. So I'm going to go to number three, another horror movie that I really like that nobody saw. Okay. Which is Event Horizon. And it's the found tape demise of the crew prior to the new crew getting on Mm. the ship that's come back from hell. Oh, yeah. It's creepy. And it's not real clear uh, as far as it's grainy. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, and it just looks like something has happened to the crew where there is some presence that is inhuman but has manifested itself as a human embodiment as they do these terrible things to each other. Mm-hmm. And then in the middle of that, we get the flash forward to what's going to happen on the crew currently on the ship. Yes. Uh, that in the theater, that's one of the more terrified moments I've been in the theater. Like mm-hmm. I always go to paranormal activity. Um, Certainly hereditary wasn't horrifying mm-hmm. in so far as scare, but it left me horrified. But that movie in the theater really got to me, and yeah. that scene in particular. So it's not a particular individual death, yeah. a compilation piece oh, yeah, of that's deaths, good. if you will. What do you think about Event Horizon? Probably? I like it. I think it's it's pretty sleepy in being that, like, I don't know if it was like a big hit when it came out, mm-hmm. but it certainly has a culty feel to it. It wasn't a big hit. I'm a huge Sam Neill fan. Yeah. Like I feel like that guy doesn't get enough love. And he's I think he's a great actor. So I love him in there, him and Lawrence Fishburne. And it has, you know, the parts of Alien. It's like yeah. Alien meets Hellraiser. Right, exactly. Uh so Well said. Yeah, I I really I really do I I do like it. Probably not as much as you, but I thoroughly enjoyed that film as well. My wife went to some great lengths to find me a DVD copy of that because you couldn't get it. Okay. Um, And if you look at the director of that film and his filmography, it's very limited. Yeah. Um, Uh, The the cast is weird. Lawrence Fishburne, like you said, mm -hmm. uh, Sam Neill, Jack Noseworthy. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's a very strange cast Mm -hmm. in a movie that... Okay, so here's another one in the list of all the things that Matt recommends Rice Smile should see. Yeah. You should see Event Horizon. It's it says really weekly recommend. Yeah. Matt yeah. recommends. Yeah. <laughs> After you see The Innocence, though. And then before that, you had to have seen, uh, what, what did you recommend the week before that? You recommended something. I think mine might have been Eyes Without a Face. Yep. There you go. There's your, your whole month's getting filled up. I'm taking all your time. And then make sure you carve out an hour each week to listen to me and Jesse, too. There you go. Well, there you go. Bastard. <laughs> okay, let's hear your number three. Number three for me from a, a slasher film from 1981. This is actually one of my favorites, and I know it has a good following within the horror community. It's The Burning. And in particular, there's this raft scene. So what I'm going to do, I'm actually going to pause the podcast right now i'm gonna show matt this scene because i don't think he knows what i'm talking about that way he has some frame of reference beautiful so i just showed matt the absolute massacre that takes place on the raft scene of the burning what did you think of that (laughs) yeah that's a doozy all right (laughs) the burning is not a movie i've seen yeah Um, i'm familiar with like the shot 
of Cropsey showing up with the garden shears. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To do them in. I had no idea what that was. Did the effects look moderately familiar? Yes. That's Tom Savini from Friday the 13th. Okay, well, that's so. what I was just going to ask you. Yeah. That feels very Savini-esque. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, boy, you can sure tell when his fingerprints are on one of those scenes. Exactly, yeah. He does Gora a very certain way. But the first time I saw that, I was the movie's, you know, it's a pretty well-made movie. Jason Alec Young performances from Jason Alexander, Holly Hunter, and Fisher Stevens, who is, mm-hmm. who is on there. And you know it, it's 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 it goes on its path, and then you get to this bit, and you're just like, oh my god! And it's just and it's just like so gory from like there on out. That slash across that young woman's head. Yikes! Yep. My goodness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, was there the, the the fingers getting lopped off? So that's number three for me. I I've always remembered that particular sequence. Okay. Yeah. Look, this number two for me is so on the nose, but I have to include it. Okay. okay. I guess it's slasher horror. Mm-hmm. It's the shower scene from Psycho. Now, mm. what you're probably saying is, Jesus, how is that number two and not number one if you're going to go that traditional <clears throat> route? But we'll see. I'll, I think I got something. Okay. I think the biggest issue for me in that scene that makes it so memorable is the vulnerable state that you find yourself in while you are showering. Oh, of course. What do you have to defend yourself with? I kind of think about that sometimes when I'm in the shower. I'm like, if some guy or woman came in here and decided to start hacking at me, how would I defend myself? Am I throwing the bar of soap at them? Yeah. Like, what am I doing? <laughs> I believe the thing as defined in the movie is a transvestite. Yep. But, yeah, you don't have the bar of soap. And then if you think about it, the floor's wet, so you don't even have really good balance to sort of plant and maybe punch. Are you going to crack somebody on the ass with a towel? Oh, no, just, yeah. You are in a very, very, very mm-hmm. raw state, literally. Yeah. Uh, and if they come in at the time when you happen to be shampooing, you don't even have vision. Mm-hmm. It's just really, really smartly done to do it the way he did it in that oh, yeah. film. When we get into the production, I don't want to do all that. We can talk about that another day. Mm-hmm. And we can talk about murdering the marquee character in the film at essentially the quarter mark in the story, the way they did in that movie. The movie's already like half over. <laughs> yeah, you're like, well, who's going to carry it? And then yeah. we meet Anthony Perkins. But mm-hmm. yeah, look, I mean, there's shower curtains with Norman Bates as mother yeah. imprinted on them. Every time you see that movie, you can't help but think about the effects of the shower oh, after yeah. you take a few. Mm-hmm. I mean, right? It's good. My favorite part of that scene is actually the aftermath. Then, yeah, when the camera pulls back on Marion Crane's eye, and it's just like unlike moving eye as it like it's a real great shot. There's some like forty different camera angles in there, and one of the mm-hmm. things not to do too much production on this, but yeah. since we are talking about it, I guess we can do a minute here. When Janet Lee dies or mm-hmm. almost dies and like falls over the side of the bathtub and her <clears throat> face is on the tile there's yeah. two things that happen if you watch closely mm-hmm. her i believe it's her left eye mm-hmm. twitches twice like you can tell that's just a little last little bit of life that is flowing out mm-hmm. of her and here's the other thing too by the time she finished this this poor woman was almost frozen to death because mm-hmm. there's only so much water yep and they tried everything from a nude colored bodied suit to mm-hmm. what have you well one of the views they had was a bird's eye view mm-hmm. So somebody in the catwalk is shooting down on the scene, and as she falls over the side of the tub, and she admitted this later on, yeah, she knew that she was giving this guy the full brown eye, mm. and was really kind of humiliated by it, but was so tired of doing the scene, yeah. just said, hell with it, I'm going to get this over with, mm-hmm. and just let that person know in the catwalk know her in a way that very few people would know her, yeah. thank gosh, yeah. and... They finished shooting it because she just was so physically Jeez. exhausted and freezing from that scene. Yikes. Yeah. Three, two and a half days to shoot that minute sequence. 
It's an all-timer, though. You know what I mean? Like, yes. it's all-time. All right, number two for you. Number two. This is actually from a film I know you're not too fond of, but, you know, this scene is just... The way it's done, you know, talking about the production, the use of color, it's the stained glass hanging from Suspiria. Uh, you know, the, the rest of Suspiria kind of goes an interesting path, but this first kind of opening, like, 10-ish minutes is, like, kind of, like, kind of crazy. And, you know, this girl, she's stabbed by this unnamed, unfaced assailant. She's literally, I think, like, she has an orifice in her heart. She gets stabbed, like, in the heart yeah. and then throw down this this very beautiful stained glass, like, apartment, like, facade. Falls down with this, like, almost, like, telephone wire to, like, hang her and then kills the, or, like, her roommate or friend at the bottom. Totally, like, slices her in half. There's a lot going on there from the music, you know, the, 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 the again, the color. But that one's always stuck out to me, too. You know, the, the I don't know how a lot of people feel about that film, but, you know, that, that, that death sequence has always been one like, yeah, I remember that one because that's Suspiria there. So that's number two for me. Yeah, you're right. Um... There's nothing. There's nothing really wrong with that film. It's a Baba film. I think here's my problem with that, and it's just it's almost from lack of knowledge. Mm-hmm. That was my entry into Baba mm. or Argenta. I'm sorry, Argenta. Yeah. So I mean, had I had I maybe gone with something that was a little different, and maybe I didn't get in there. Maybe I could have been an appetizer into what yeah. was the gourmet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is. There are times films come out and everyone sees it one way and you're the one person that doesn't. And you have to come to a point where, like, maybe I just don't get it. Sure. And be like, maybe I'm the one that's wrong on this. Yeah. And I might be the one that's wrong on that. Mm -hmm. Um, As I'm a little bit more advanced in my film knowledge or my library has increased, maybe it would be worth a review. Maybe the remake Mm -hmm. and that one, too. Um, But you're... I like what you said, though. Uh, you wish you wouldn't maybe have seen that one first. And, you know, maybe one of his other giallos like Tenebrae or even like Bird with the Crystal Plumage would probably have been better in for you. Because it's more fantastical than anything he had done prior to that. You know, kind of dealing with this school of witches and whatnot. But, no, yeah. He's an interesting He's an interesting person. He's made some very interesting films. But that's number two for me. I've always, like, very vividly remember that sequence. Yeah. Like, Yes. All right, Matt, what's number one for you? Uh, about as classic in horror as you can get, mm-hmm. and it's from Frankenstein. Okay. And it's the monster throwing the little girl mm. into the lake. Mm, good stuff. So this monster who has been resurrected from assembled body parts with the brain of a criminal is trying to figure out exactly where they fit and what what this new embodiment of him is. And he comes across a little girl. Mm-hmm. At a lake, yeah. who <laughs> is set up in about two minutes prior with her asking her father, Dad, can you stay and play with me? And he's like, I have to go, honey. You be a good girl now. And like, as a dad, mm-hmm. he tells her no and then leaves her to her own devices, which she happens to find by floating flowers in the lake mm-hmm. as boats. Yeah, The monster happens upon her. And then he begins throwing flowers in the lake. And for the first time in the film, we actually see acceptance between a human and to the monster. And the monster, yeah. And then he runs out of flowers and realizes he has nothing left to throw mm-hmm. and surmises yeah. beautiful things belong in the water. Mm-hmm. Well, the little girl's beautiful. Yeah. So he picks her up, throws her in there. She can't swim. Sinks. Drowns. And then if that's not enough, yeah. we watch the dad, the next time we see him, carrying her wet, muddy-socked, 
lifeless, limp body. I think her name's Maria, if I remember. It is, mm-hmm. yes. Through the town, wondering what happened. And James Whale is in no hurry to cut from that particular shot. Mm-hmm. Just walking through the town as people are freaking out around him in broad daylight. Yeah. Holding the limpless, sorry, lifeless, limp corpse of his daughter. Yeah. Um... Look, you yeah. know how much I love it. Yeah. You've given me a gift based on that oh, the, particular the Mondo scene. Poster. The yeah, Mondo yeah. poster uh-huh. is based on that. Yep. Um, that's that's number one. That's awesome. Well, yeah. that's that's good. That's a good breakdown of of the sequence too. It's it's really when he throws her and he just kind of he kind of looks around and he's like, "What just happened?" Well, I, well, I guess I'm done here. And he kind of just takes because he doesn't even really he can't even really register it in his brain. He does show a bit of remorse, like he kind of stands up and sort of waves his arms, like, like where did ah, yeah, like where happened? did she go? Right, and like you can see that in his simple mm-hmm. and I mean this like retarded state, mm-hmm. he even can deduce something has gone astray here. Yeah. And I'm the root of that. And I think that's the only time in that first movie it changes in the second movie. Yeah. But in the first movie, we see the semblance of a soul inside of that monster mm-hmm. and just how tortured that monster yeah. is. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah. Love it. Thank number you. number one. Number one for me, man, I must have a theme with like panes of glass or whatnot. So in the one shot I mentioned how, you know, the omen didn't quite make the final cut. Oh, yeah, I think I know where you're going. Yeah. And the Omen has many brilliant death scenes, um, whether it's, you know, the priest with the spear or the, the hanging of the, the babysitter. Mm-hmm. But there's one that just sticks out to me, and it's the one that, like, as always, like, the first time I saw it, I was just stunned. And it's the David Warner getting the daggers out of the dirt as the truck careens past him, hits a boulder, and the pane of glass just decapitates him oh, into, like, the coffee shop. Yeah. Well, yikes! Like that film. That film, I think, is very. It should be talked about more in the like great horse circles because you know great performances by you know uh, Gregory Peck, Liam Remick, and uh, David Warner specifically. But as they start to like unfold, like what they need to do, and Gregory Peck's like, "I'm not going to kill my child." And he's like, "Well, if you don't do it, I will." Mm-hmm. The path of the devil's already on all these characters, so he pays the ultimate price. It's just. Do you remember the first time you saw you saw that film that, that, that and th- those sequences? Do you remember the babysitter that I talked to you about? That oh, was my, the, she showed th- she, the thriller babysitter. She showed this one too. Um, <laughs> no, but her lax uh, guidance mm. allowed me to see that film one time. I think she was on the phone with her boyfriend. Like okay. it literally, you couldn't have had a more formulaic horror movie babysitter than mine. Yeah. And Donna Herman, if you're out there, <laughs> I, thank you for giving me. <laughs> thank you for letting me see all these things at such a young age. <laughs> Was the omen mm-hmm. um, an omission from min- Wednesday's midweek shot about top ten? Like the fact that we, neither one of us included that was that a mistake? Now maybe I do really lo- love that film. You know, mm-hmm. ri- it's Richard Donner. Yep, just as cursed as things like The Exorcist or Poltergeist. Like well the, the, all those people had a lot of shit happen to them while they were making that movie. Well, look, Lee Remy and Gregory Peck alone is a pretty star-studded cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'll never forget too. Like that, you got the ending where. You know, Damien's still alive, and yeah. he's being adopted by. Uh, it's it's a senator in the sequel, but I think they're alluding to it's the president or whoever at the end of that film. Yeah, and he just kind of looks at the camera, and then you fade to black. To I can't remember the exact quote. It, it's from um, Revelations in the Bible, and it says he <laughs> shall bear the name, the number to be six 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 six. And they're playing that great Jerry Goldsmith Avsanti, mm-hmm. and you just how do you not get the goosebumps when you see that? And you're just like yikes, yeah. like. 
it has such a tone. That's 1976. It still works well today. Mm-hmm. Hey, in that period, we've talked about a lot. Good films. Can I have one honorable mention? Go ahead. Just missed. Yeah. And if I gave this list to you next week, it might make. Mm-hmm. It's also from classic horror, and mm. it's Dracula. Mm. And it's Dwight Fry's allusion to the vamping of the nurse oh, who's yeah. passed out. Uh, Dwight Fry's an interesting guy mm-hmm. in the Universal Monster series. Oh, yeah. He ends up mostly playing Igor, but he also plays Renfield, and he actually wasn't cast in that part. Mm-hmm. He was literally like a guy on set that they just needed to fill in and said, hey, do you want to do it? Could you imagine yeah. in a movie like that today, just, hey, you got a minute? Can you come up? Can you come be this part? So crazy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they pulled Dwight Fry along, and not only does he steal that movie, mm-hmm. but watching him slowly mm-hmm. on all fours move across the floor to the nurse who has just passed out because he is so freaky mm-hmm. knowing what's coming yeah oh man and you don't actually see anything other than him lowering just himself the, the, to her. The, the, the lurching towards her i'll do you one better when they open up the the cargo of the ship and he's just like eh, 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 like yikes nightmares so in a fist fight between claude rains and Dwight Fry? And Dwight Fry. And Dwight Fry's wins, kicking his ass. Kicks his ass. Yeah, it's not even close. Not even fuck you, Claude Rains. Yeah. <laughs> That's kidding. Me and Jesse are the president, vice president of Claude Rains Fan Club. Yeah, exactly. All hey, right. Matt, cheers to that. Those are some great, great lists. Uh, fans, Ry Nation out there, let us know what your favorite uh, death scenes are, the ones that have stuck out to you the most. Hit us up on Facebook, Instagram, or leave us emails at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. Any which way, we'll read them on the next episode. Uh, we, we love shouting out the fans. we got some great fans out there. So, you ready to let's, head down to Elm Street? Let's do it. Excellent. Here's our review breakdown of A Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street starts out with a very rudimentary crafting of what might be considered one of cinema's greatest weapons or or props for that matter. Yeah. Which is Freddy Krueger's five-fingered knife glove. And, you know, we got to give Wes Craven a lot of props. You know, he's the one that kind of wrote this film, you know, kind of came up with this. I want to share just a couple things before we get really into the meat of this story of like kind of his inspiration. You know, Wes Craven, you know, very smart man, I believe, read a lot of books, read a lot of news stories, and actually based a lot of his films out out of stuff he read. I mean, he based The Hills Have Eyes out out of this, like, 1700s, like, cult family um, based in history. And then uh, this one, it was actually kind of based on these articles in the LA Times about these uh, Southeast Asian refugee men who were, couldn't sleep, and people, they, they were having nightmares, and they refused to sleep. I think they called it at one point Asian death syndrome. But it occurred between ages 9 and 57. And it killed these men in their sleep. Like unbeknownst to anything. They did autopsies. There was no signs of heart attack. No signs of suicide. They just straight up. They just died in their sleep. Which is kind of frightening. So yeah. imagine him kind of seeing that story. And like well I'm going to take that idea. But I'm going to put something in there with them. Mm-hmm. And what he gives us is Freddy Krueger. Played by Robert England. That's pretty great too. You you've gotten to meet Wes Craven before as well. Very yeah. jealous of you, actually. Yeah. Um, would you like to share about that experience? It might have been as brief as it was. Like, what did you kind of feel? You know, kind of talking to. Him? Yeah, sure. 
there was a group of writers that I was uh, taking some meetings with some mm-hmm. years ago in L.A., and we were at an event one night that essentially was kind of a B-list Oscar party, mm-hmm. pre-Oscar party, kind of a viewing pre-Oscar party. And I ran into him there. We had a very short conversation. I got a chance to shake his hand and thank him for the work and the influence that he'd had on me. Yeah. But it, just the general... Um, introduction of himself to the group that I was with, you could tell that the guy was fairly cerebral mm. and fairly kind of contained or maybe restrained. Yeah. Whereas some other writers that I met, including like David Milch, mm-hmm. are way out there crazy, you know, um, and then she said, like, mm-hmm. um, he was quiet. There was a quietness about yeah. him. But you could tell it wasn't because he wasn't involved or he was uninvolved. Mm-hmm. It's because he was thinking. Yeah. Uh, so I think you're calling him an intelligent man is is uh spot on yeah he was gracious and he was a gentleman and um rest his soul yeah our rest in peace west craven yeah let's to him to him yeah great filmography for the most part uh no i say that because when you watch the interviews of especially on the nightmare dvds or hills have eyes and you kind of hear him talk he is kind of you know, kind of self-contained. He's, yeah. he's not bombastic and like some filmmakers you might see, he's real reserved and composed with like how he's saying things. Mm-hmm. He doesn't seem full of it like, you know, some filmmakers might come across. He's or, not going to walk in and be the biggest man in the room. Yeah. He's going to walk very quietly and leave a mark after he's done. Mm-hmm. And I think that speaks volumes because mm-hmm. you can be big talk, braggadocio, oh, yeah. bombastic like you said. Oh, yeah. Or you can be the other guy. Mm-hmm. That you forget about, mm-hmm. and then when you're done, you're like, "Oh wait, that was him." Yep. My goodness, what did we just miss? Exactly. That yeah. that's awesome. So you know, the scene sets up the crafting of the glove, and then right into Dreamscape with Tina, played by Amanda Weiss. Do you remember her? She was Brad Hamilton's girlfriend in Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Oh, that's right. <laughs> yeah. So there's yeah. only two things I know her from. Yeah. But you know, we're kind of in our opening scene here in this film is this you know stalking of Tina in the Dreamscape. And whether it's Charles Bernstein's, you know, very euphoric, you know, score that makes it feel so melodic and dreamlike, um, you already kind of get the sense that we're in a different type of playground as opposed to Camp Crystal Lake. Right. Mm-hmm. Do you like this introduction of Freddy Krueger? Like, it's, it's just a, it's a tease. Like, I especially love the beginning credits mm-hmm. where we're watching the crafting of the glove mm-hmm. and just the sort of industrial, chic, dirty, unsanitary, rudimentary way that that glove is crafted. Mm -hmm. So then we don't really get a great look at him. There's You kind of get the silhouette of him in a quick, like, and then Tina's going to snap out of her dream. Mm -hmm. But, you know, Jesse, I wish I could tell you that between 1985, maybe 87 or 88 would be the last time that I saw this film, Mm -hmm. and now there had been another viewing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because I, I wish I could remember what my transition was from then till now. Okay. But I do know at the initial viewing, when Tina wakes up and she has those slashes on her nightgown, yeah. mid-abdomen area, the first thought that I had was kind of similar in a way mm-hmm. to the shower scene from Psycho. Mm-hmm. If you're asleep, you're pretty vulnerable. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. So... I remember thinking like, man, the cards are really stacked against you mm-hmm. if it happens when you're sleeping. Because look, you and I, everybody out there has nightmares. Oh, yeah. And you don't like it. Mm-hmm. And you mostly can't get out of it. Yeah. Now take that and raise the stakes. Yeah. You're going to die mm-hmm. if you can't get out of it. Yeah. 
well, you and me can't even get out of this weird nonsensical thing that we're in that's just a Tuesday night, you know, fever dream or just dream dream nightmare. Exactly. Now here's a thing that's actually got a plot to do you in. After you, yeah. Man, you, it, the cards are really stacked. It's a very insurmountable villain mm-hmm. that we have created. I like um, I like that line that the mother rolls in on or like, better cut those fingernails or you got to stop that kind of dreaming. Oh, yeah, mom, I'll just stop this kind of dreaming. I'm just going to stop slashing myself in the middle of the night. That always cracked me up. Do you think... The parents or the parenting element in Nightmare mm. with the three big, the, the, mm-hmm. the big three that we're going to do. Do you think the parenting element in Nightmare is the worst depiction of the three? Shows parents in the worst light? I think so. I do too. But it, so what we don't know at this beginning part right now and we find out later is these children are living in the sins of their parents' right. deeds. Which, you know, they might have been deeds with good intentions of trying to get this child murder and he was a child murderer. You get, later, they say he killed 20 people. I'm like, my God, it's like a John Wayne Gacy living in your neighborhood. Yeah. So it's almost... And then the way he escapes the justice system. So you kind of like, yeah, the parents, yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. But then, like, the kids are paying for it right now. The kids of Elm Street. So, yeah, I think they're fairly problematic. But then they're also, again, like we set up last week, they're the unreliable authority figure. Yeah. Later, we have Ronnie Blakely just drinking her way through the film. Uh, we got John Saxon as the the detective of Nancy's father, a strange divorced father. Not really, kind of like investigating into the claims. No one really listens into the claims of these kids. They're truly on their own, um, as you are in these type of films. Mm-hmm. But let's introduce the rest of our, our our cast here. We have Heather Langenkamp as Nancy. She's going to be our inevitable final girl. Uh, we have uh, Nick Corey as Rod Lane, which. <laughs> And I always put the, the subtitles on. Because what does he say when he rolls up to them? He's like, hey, up yours with the twirling lawnmower. And I'm like, who says that? Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I was like, good comeback, Rod. <laughs> and then um, Rod. and then maybe maybe not familiar to any film viewer out there, uh, Johnny Depp as uh, Glenn. Yeah. Of course you're going to know Johnny Depp. He became one of the biggest actors in the 90s and the 2000s. His first film role. And can I back this one up with Platoon. Yeah, and Platoon was, yeah, I think the, the year after, the two years after this. Yep. This is a very awesome, interesting story and just kind of shows how the universe just works in weird ways. So Johnny Depp actually went to the audition and he, he went with a friend of his. Do you know who his friend was? River Phoenix. Oh, no. That's a different path we could go on. He went with uh, his, his good friend, Jackie Earl Haley. No kidding. Jackie Earl Haley would go on to play Freddy Krueger in the Nightmare remake. remake. Yeah, isn't that kind of just like a weird twist of fate? Yeah. But yeah, his first film role, rocking rock a sweater vest like no one else can, mm-hmm. 1984. Yeah. So yeah, this is our kind of our little group. And something I noticed last night that I've noticed before but didn't pay too much attention to was all four of these kids, we get a, just a little bit before Freddy shows up big time. They've that they've they're all kind of having these similar dreams. Glenn mentions it in passing. Nancy and uh, Tina are talking about it, and then after they have sex, Rod tells Tina's like he's like you know guys could have nightmares too, you know. Um, all kind of alluding to this is plaguing all of them, and no, they're not really talking about it. Mm-hmm. So what's going to happen? They're going to just kind of be fodder for this thing, right? The um. Introduction of Johnny Depp in this film, Mm -hmm. I think, is a really interesting one. We've talked about sometimes how actors or actresses don't want to give a nod to where they came from. Mm -hmm. Um, And and so be it. Whatever. Like, you can... That's their choice. But I do think that even early on in Johnny Depp's filmography, Mm -hmm. you can kind of see... 
that he's just a little bit different than the other ones that are in there. Mm-hmm. And it's partly because, no offense to Heather Langenkamp, yeah. but she's not a good actress. Mm-hmm. Robert England, like, come on, right? Mm-hmm. So he's up against... He's he's a, a shark with guppies, sure, yeah. talent-wise. But he is actually pretty good in this film. And mm-hmm. you can see, yeah. as the franchise is going to grow up, mm-hmm. how Johnny Depp is also going to grow mm-hmm. up as well. He actually comes back in a cameo role as himself for, uh, I think it's uh, Freddy's Dead, The Final Nightmare, which, God, like, talk about a shit film. Um, so he did come back to embrace the, like, you know, the film that kind of started his career, unlike Mr. Kevin Bacon right. last week. Right. But interesting. So, like, look, we've had, we had Kevin Bacon last week, Johnny Depp, um, this week. We're going to have Jamie Lee Curtis next week. Like, mm-hmm. man, horror's just the gift that keeps on giving. Like, you know, I think George Clooney's first film role was, like, Return to Whore High. Tom Hanks's first film role was a slasher called He Knows You're Alone. Like, a ton of Jennifer Aniston, Leprechaun. Leprechaun. A lot of actors get their start in this genre. Like it, it's it's very fascinating. It is, yeah. You know, There's actually a funny story I, I read this week actually that Jennifer Aniston said when she was dating Justin Thoreau that he popped on Leprechaun one night and was like, "Hey, we're gonna watch this tonight," <laughs> and she wanted no part of it. But they sat and watched the whole thing, and she was just like, "Oh my gosh!" Like those are the early days. But he was just <laughs> he just put it on. I thought that was kind of hilarious, actually. You know, another one of the interesting choices in this is John Saxon. Oh, yeah. Because he ends up playing sort of the role that Pleasance is going to play in Halloween, mm. right? They're very similar yeah. in their place at that time yes. in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how many days they had Saxon for compared to Pleasance for Halloween. We're going to get into that. Mm-hmm. But it it's very similar and they kind of play the same role. Pleasance is more the analytical mind where Saxon's no. more of the embodiment <laughs> of the law. But they both do the same kind of thing in the movie. Planet Pleasance, the analytical mind where everything is evil. <laughs> yeah. Sorry I had. Right, but John Saxon's not going to set the stage on fire with ability either. But it no, lent yeah. an air of credibility to the film because at least he was established. Well, he had done Black Christmas, Enter the Dragon. That's what I was going to say, Enter the Dragon. And he'd been in... Um, he, he'd actually been in a few Jallos too with uh, Mario Bava. Is that right? Yep. And uh, no, yeah, you're right. Uh, era of credibility. And then we add Ronnie Blakely. And I think I told you last week, she won an Oscar for Nashville. So mm-hmm. our cast isn't like... Awful. Trash, yeah, right. no, it's actually pretty good. Right. So let's get um right to the first big moment here, which is Tina back in the dreamscape. You know, she's kind of woken awake by I always thought stones, but That's what I thought it on, was too. On research, it's a tooth. It's a tooth lodged into the the pane of glass there. Oh, there's no way you can tell that's what that it's is. It's hard, yeah. So I think that's probably like a script note and then just kind of like what they told us, but kind of gross. So she stumbles out there into the alleyway, and then we get that moment that you love, mm-hmm. that kind of like, Tina, and we get the arm stretching out, which, you know, it looks ridiculous, but if you saw that visage in a dark alleyway, like, late at night, oh my how would you not shit your pants? Right. And then so she runs down the alleyway, his arms have retracted, and he's tracking her down, mm-hmm. and again, we get how bad running is for the person that's usually trying to get away in the yeah. film. And that scene, there's not a lot of quipping or one-liners from Freddy. It's just basically, here I am, and it's curtains. I think what does he say? Like, this is God, and it's just like after her. Yep. But I like that about this Freddy. Simple. I think he's he fits that for most of the film, and then starting in like 
too in and in Dream Warriors is when he started Welcome to Prime Time, bitch. Mm-hmm. Like he develops that quippy side to him, which works to an extent. But you know, I like the menacing Freddy as well. He's got a real edge to himself mm-hmm. because he is so mysterious, right? And we get this death, the death of Tina here in this revolving, you know, room. And this is like the Fred Astaire room where mm-hmm. where um, Rod's like on like a platform and the room's turning. So Tina's turning with it. Yeah. You always remember that, like, Tina! And she's being torn apart there. Like, really? Well, I don't think we'd ever seen like a death scene done like that before. But, man, the room's just covered in blood after all this. Jesus. And the thing that makes that even worse is she wakes up. Mm-hmm. She's clearly awake and trying to get to Rod to help her. Yeah. So if you wake up from the nightmare and it's too late, it's too late. Mm-hmm. So now we've added a ticking <clears throat> clock element to this bomb that's about to explode. Mm-hmm. So crap, it's not even wake up from the dream. It's wake up from the nightmare in time yep. before it's too late. Because mm-hmm. she's way awake. And here's the thing. Rod sees it, can't do anything about it, mm-hmm. and then we get him being blamed. Yeah, he just takes off. Which I think is going to be a very consistent theme in this film is the isolation. Oh, Whether yeah. it's that you're asleep or you can't count on anybody, yeah. it's basically when it gets down to it, you versus Freddy. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all of the times in this first film that someone asks another to do them a favor... They never, ever fulfill no, the they favor. Don't. They, they don't follow through. Can you wake me up? Can you be here at 1030? Can, nope, nope. Yeah, yeah, of course. And then none of them follow through. Exactly. So we see it. Ronnie can't, or yeah, Ronnie can't follow through. Mm-hmm. And then he basically flees. Yeah. So now he's on the run. So he's even more isolated. Yeah. One thing I want to mention too also. Rod, I think I said Ron. Rod. Yeah, Rod Lane. Uh, one thing that, you know... Um, that Craven kind of did with the Freddy sweater. You know, I'm kind of wearing my Freddy sweater right now. Yeah. Not the traditional colors. It's it's more of like a red and like a dark foresty green. Mm-hmm. Craven chose those colors because according to like a scientific journal, he found out that those two colors when put together clash in the retina. They're the hardest two car- uh, colors to digest simultaneously. How about that? So thus making Freddy like a hard to look at film object. Mm-hmm. Is that why we... Is that why everyone hates Christmas so much? Because of the green and red? Well, look, I mean, it's hard not to draw the ties to that. Yeah. And we could get into the breakdown of Christmas. As a huge fan of Christmas, I'm probably yeah. not the best to sing, you know, the, the horrors of it. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's hard to look at mm-hmm. from his burned appearance to yeah. the fedora to the red and green to the claw. He's hard to look at. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing that's also different about this. Whereas... When Friday the 13th evolves into canon or proper, Mm -hmm. it's the mask, the hockey mask with Jason. Freddy's the one of the three where we really do get to see his face a lot. Oh, yeah. And his mask, in a sense, or his signature article of clothing becomes the sweater and maybe you could argue the glove. Mm -hmm. But it's the sweater. So you do get Freddy and the hat and it's that damn red and green sweater that you instead... And if it, I didn't know that, if it's based on an analysis of the way it's perceived in your retina mm-hmm. and what that does to you, yeah. again, it speaks to what we said earlier with Wes Craven. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do this a little bit different. Yeah. I'm not going to give you a mask. I'm going to give you this sweater. And on top of this sweater, mm-hmm. I'm going to make it hard for your body to sort of make peace with as you're looking at it. And you don't even know it. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah, pretty it's, smart. It, yeah, it is. Yeah, he's got something there. Uh 
Yeah, Craven also kind of states that, you know, I'll kind of quote him right here. In a sense, Freddy, he, he has stated that Freddy stands for the worst of parenthood and adulthood. Um, the dirty old man, the nasty father, the adult who wants children to die rather than help them prosper. Hmm. He's the boogeyman and the worst fear of children. He's the adult that's out to get them. He's, in a way, an embodiment of the establishment, just kind of like, trying to punish these kids whether they're having sex or trying to smoke dope or like whatever misbehaving with their parents mm-hmm. like it's like one of it's like it's like La Llorona or any of those tells you you better watch out or one two Freddy's coming for you that's another great thing we kind of skipped over was the little nursery rhyme that Craven wrote that too that that, that thing's legendary right yes something that the kids in Elm Street that when they're out in the street playing this is like a thing that they do it's it's now become this urban boogeyman in Springwood, Illinois. Look, after the Vietnam era and the Watergate era mm-hmm. subside and we move into the Reaganite era of film, mm-hmm. what we start to see is a celebration in film of Reagan-like principles, which is Judeo-Christian, um, establishment, authority wins, the law is important. And I think Wes Craven does a really good job of creating a villain because if you look at that and everything you just said, like father knows best, like literally Ronald Reagan was the Gipper. He played the Gipper. Mm-hmm. So it is very traditional with American values in a post Mm-hmm. So World War II era kind of re-embodiment in 19 and through 80 through 88. Yeah. Even through 92 if you want to include the first Bush. To take Freddy and fly in the face of all of that mm-hmm. as like, oh, yeah, well, what happens mm-hmm. if everything you believe in, the dad, yeah. the parenting, yeah. all fails? You create a nice social construct for a villain mm-hmm. that I think makes him what he is, which is effective. Oh, yeah. Because there's social ties to it. And to that, you know, I'm going to give Wes Craven another nod because that's pretty smart. Tina's dead. Rod's out on the lamb. Everyone thinks it's him. He's arrested. And then we go to school the next day. Nancy's going to school trying to kind of move on after her friend was just torn apart. I wouldn't go to school the next day. That's just me. But um, we get this kind of um, uh, we get this kind of weird, interesting uh, kind of reading of this Macbeth play. Um, but, and, and then it enters dreamscape again as she sees Tina. I love this image too. Tina in the body bag. Like outside the room, she goes out and then it's pulled invisibly through like the hallway with this big trail of blood. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love it. I, I love this little bit. Um, the woman in the uh, the teacher, that's Lynn Shay. You might remember her from the Insidious films. Mm-hmm. She's part of like that Ghostbusting unit. Mm-hmm. It's actually Bob Shay's sister. Oh. Bob Shay's the CEO of New Line Cinema, yeah. which I'd like to talk about for a little bit. Which you know how every Hollywood filmmaking story goes. Nightmare on Elm Street was passed over by every major studio, Paramount, Warner, uh, Universal. And then you have this fledgling, you can't even call them two-tier at this point, probably the C-team mm-hmm. uh, studio that was like, oh, that sounds, we'll do that. Talk about a gamble, but it paid off. And New Line Cinema, in years past, has always called their studio the house that Freddie built because their sequels were widely popular, especially by the time we get to 
Dream uh, uh, Dream Warriors and Dream uh, Master Part Four. That they're making buku bu- buku bucks. So, I- well, to back up what you just said, yeah. Do you know what New Line made mm. this movie for? One point eight. Yeah, it doesn't look one point. It looks like five to seven million. Which you guys are like big deal, but no. But in nineteen eighty five, that was equivalent to like a thirty or forty dollar, thirty or forty million yeah. dollar picture today. But do you think it looks one million? I don't think no. I don't think it does. I think no. Craven used that budget very well. Yeah. I want to mention another thing too about you know studios taking a chance too because jump up twenty five years later to nineteen ninety nine. And you have the same situation. Peter Jackson shopping the Lord of the Rings around Hollywood. Warner uh, Warner's doesn't want it. Universal doesn't want it. Paramount doesn't want it. Here comes New Line Cinema again saying, hey, we'll do that. And he was only going to make two films, the first two. And Bob Shea says, well, isn't this a three? Isn't this a three book series? Don't you want to do the third one? He's like, yeah. He's like, yeah, we'll let you do all three. If this film's a bomb and we don't have that type of that exec that's taking chances on these properties, I don't even think we get that trilogy if this doesn't work. I wish I could, we could come up with a list of the amount of misses that we can associate mm-hmm. in the last generation with mm-hmm. Warner Brothers specifically. <laughs> right? Think about what you just said. Sure. You will pass yeah. on the Ho- the Hobbit trilogy, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, mm-hmm. but the next thing you've got coming out is that god awful Birds of Prey? And I'm just gonna say it. That looks like garbage, yeah, absolute <laughs> shit. Suicide Squad 2.0. Yeah. So you, you'll pass on that, but you'll make Suicide. You know what, Warner? No <clears throat> wonder yeah. that DC has gone the way that it has, which has basically been trash. Yeah. Even the stuff that we say is okay is mostly really not okay, but, but it's it, okay for Warner. Well, it's hard to be good if you have like two or three good ones and then like 25 duds. You know what I mean? That's not a great record. Especially with the legacy of what Warner was like. Again, it that's my favorite film studio, man. I think back to Warner. I think back to like really good like comedy, like mm-hmm. great comedy, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. When I think to MGM, I think like really kind of showy, epic-y, glitzic. But Warner to me is like great, great comedy. Do you agree with that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, so maybe if you want to go with that, neither one of these two films <clears throat> fit in Warner's. But you know what fits in every studio's thing? Mm-hmm. Money. Yeah. And if the budget for Warner mm-hmm. would have been under two for this movie even in 1985 how do you not just make it anyway just to yeah. keep some talent busy on set they could have done it yeah I, I wonder like we'll have to look into this and maybe while you go here for a minute I'll look into it yeah what Warner did like what Warner chose to produce mm-hmm. while New Line was producing this like in compare yeah. was it you know um, Cutthroat Island versus right what was this a Cutthroat <laughs> Island <laughs> choice <laughs> for them yeah uh no one of the things that probably saved that studio in later years was they did do the harry potter franchise so they didn't miss on that one but could have had and, you know what i mean though yeah okay so like and truth be squirrel to- finds a nut every once in a while this is weird too because you know it's interesting we're talking about warner because they actually absolved new line cinema because they they kind of folded under at one point so Technically, they are Warner Brothers now, so right. that's that's bizarre. So you I did can't, not can't I, beat them, absorb them. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But no, you hear those stories. Like George Lucas had the same thing of like shopping Star Wars, and no one wants it. And it's just as we say all the time, as we know as writers, it just takes one. Right. And when it's one and it pays off, you get something like this. This seven film Frank. Look, I got two box sets here, Matt. Mm-hmm. It worked for somebody. Yeah, right. You know what I mean? Exactly. So we're back at the school here. We get Freddie again. Uh, Nancy wakes up from her dream, burns herself. So now we're actually getting recognition of being harmed within the dream has consequences in the real life. Mm-hmm. 
So let's kind of cut to another iconic sequence, which is Nancy in the bathtub. Mm. You know, this was another bath. Like, again, we talked about, uh, I was going to say The Shining, but you talked about the psycho in the shower scene. Mm. I kind of feel the same way here um, for those that like to take baths, first of all. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, yeah, Freddy's glove coming up between her. You know, yeah, read into that however which way you will. But isn't that a striking image of that glove coming through the bathtub? And then kind of pulling her in later, and it was built on top of this like 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 a dunk tank, like a swimming tank. You know, Craven's doing a lot of like really high concept ideas with like you just said, like one point whatever million dollars. Like those those are big things to do in a film like this. The shot of Freddy's glove up through the water as we see him ready or poised to attack mm-hmm. Nancy mm-hmm. is between her legs, mm-hmm. Jesse. Mm-hmm. So again, it's Wes Craven. Playing around with that idea of the perversion of sexuality. Because mm-hmm. she's not in a place where she even knows that's half her eyes are closed and she's relaxed. And she's kind of just raw yep. <laughs> um, and relaxed. And I don't, I'm not insinuating anything from that. I'm just saying she's she's not Dean Loomis in the bathtub and Splinter in the grass after no, 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 no. post-coital with herself. Like, she's just, like, vulnerable. Yeah, very vulnerable again. And, like, you're like, oh, my God, not only is he going to drag her down, but he's going to drag her down with that mm-hmm. from there exactly jesus christ elevate the stakes a little bit here mm-hmm. um and then we get into it and she's able to sort of rescue herself from the bathtub i guess mom gets to the door yeah and knocks yeah and wakes her out of this dream state mm-hmm. just in time yeah because we've seen that happen earlier in the film where if it's a little too late then it's just too late and then the parents don't see it yeah mm-hmm Cut to the very next sequence, and we actually have something here that I really love. It's directors having fun with each other. So Wes Craven has on the TV uh, uh, Evil Dead, which we've talked about in the last couple of weeks. This yeah. started three years earlier in the first Evil Dead when Raimi put a like kind of a torn up like Hills Have Eyes poster in the the basement of oh, that right. of that house. I forgot all about that. So he saw that and was like, well, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of, you know, give you a solid, give you the next one. And so he, he did, um, evil dead, um, on the screen. So that? then in evil dead two in the tool shed, you can allegedly see Freddie's glove hanging as one of the tool implements. So it's kind of this nice back and forth acknowledging, you know, Hey, I really liked your film. You know, it scared me and kind of like trying to like put it in. I think it ended there, but that, that's kind of a fun little kind of, you know, game they were playing. That's cool. Like those little nods there. But then again, we get to what you mentioned earlier, Glenn showing up and just being totally useless saying, I'm going to go into the dream. I'm going to get this guy. You cold cock the fucker. You just got to wake me up. He's like, oh, yeah, I'll do it. (laughs) What does he do? He falls asleep. Johnny Depp, wake up. Yeah, exactly. It's your girlfriend. Like he is pissed off because she won't give it up. And then when she needs him to do something on the other end, which is like, keep me alive, Mm -hmm. he falls asleep. Exactly. And so she's stuck with Freddy. Yeah. And her own devices. But this actually is going to play out in the story because she starts to become now a little bit more familiar with the way he fights and starts to build up Mm -hmm. um, a library of moves, if you will, that you can use against him later. I guess. Moves is a bad way to put it. Yeah, it's karate moves. No, that's good. And then she sees like uh, Freddy going into kind of get Rod in 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 the jail cell. And then we get this. I hate this moment, too. Like, I hate it because it like grosses me out because I hate bugs. Um, uh, Tina in the body bag again. The centipede just rolls out of her mouth. Ugh, like I, I hate that shit. Yeah, yeah. 
I hope that was a prosthetic dummy. I, as an actor, I wouldn't agree to do something like that. <laughs> That'd be a deal breaker for you. Yeah. <laughs> so they're waking up. Everyone's yelling at each other. You know, we have another chase with Freddy as the room's torn apart with the feathers. And we hightail it to the jail cell. But it's too late. Rod has hanged himself. Mm-hmm. But it's really by the vices of Freddy Krueger. Mm-hmm. Again, another uniquely kind of done like a self-tying rope like this like noose. That just kind of strings them up. So, again, we the authority figures can't believe the claims of Nancy that she saw Freddy trying to do this because it looks like someone hanged himself. Right. So, again, we're just so screwed at this point. But now the stakes have gone up even more mm-hmm. because we're finding that the amount of people that have to support <clears throat> Nancy's stories about him is falling one by one, becoming less and less... Um, able to sort of back it up with well they said it and i said it. There, there's no support mm-hmm. so as the numbers around her posse or her clan start to decrease i'll get back to what i said earlier oh, yeah can't rely on your boyfriend because he can't even remake you like remember to wake you up after 20 minutes yeah it's going to be literally mm-hmm. you against him but it's really not you against him mm-hmm. it's you against him and all of the sins mm-hmm. that caused freddie to rise so can we talk about that scene? yeah let's do it go ahead with ronnie set, blakely set it up so eventually she sort of comes clean with mom and says this is what's happening. And Ronnie Blakely, um, Nan- what's her name, Nancy in the movie? No, uh, Marge. Marge Thompson. Marge. Marge. <laughs> Takes her into like the basement and there's a furnace in the right and this, this wood-burning stove thing. It just kind of feels like where they would have killed Freddie. Mm-hmm. And Ronnie Blakely, Marge Thompson, gives Nancy mm-hmm. what's going to be established later, but the beginnings of the history of Freddie. Yeah. And you recognize like, oh man, this dude's going after the kids because Mm -hmm. he's always gone after the kids. And now he's going after the kids of the parents who did him in. Mm -hmm. And so this is like generational as far as revenge goes. Oh yeah. And that's the worst kind of revenge. There's like five minute old revenge where I'm just mad at you. Yeah. And then there's like, I've been mad at you for like Hatfield and McCoy kind of revenge. Well, if you burn me up and incinerate (laughs) me, I'm pretty pissed off. And we don't have... A real clear reason why he's come back or how he's come back mm-hmm, yet. Mm-hmm. Look, it's a demon or an embodiment of the supernatural. Yeah. You can get into, well, usually it's because they have an axe to grind with those that put him six feet under. Yeah. And I guess that works here. And you know what? And I think I don't even like really even think no. of those type of things while watching because I'm actually kind of really enjoying my time while watching the film. I wish that scene between Ronnie Blakely and Heather Langenkamp, mom and daughter, was a you're going to get more of that in the third film. They're mm-hmm. going to break down the mental institution and the rape of the oh, nun the bastard son of a thousand maniacs. Yep. Gonna, which oh my god, yeah, you're going to get that later. But I almost wish that scene was a little bit longer and we got in a little bit more deep. Mm. Because here's what we're starting to find out about mom too. Mm-hmm. She's pretty boozy, hard drinking. <laughs> Most of the time, her daughter's dying. She's drunk. She's drinking vodka straight. That, straight. I want to like vomit when I. Right. We're drinking bourbon straight, but that's a different... At least it's in a glass, yeah, it's not a... out of the bottle. <laughs> <laughs> right. That rock up passed. I'm drinking out of the bottle. I'm doing it. I'm telling you right now. So this is the historian for why Freddy's after them. Mm-hmm. And this is who she's come to rely on. Because like I told you, her support <clears throat> system is dwindling yeah. by the day or mm-hmm. by the night. Mm-hmm. Ha-ha. Mm-hmm. And you just feel, okay, Nancy, sooner or later... It's going to be you versus him, honey. And what do you have? And that's why the scene that we spoke about was so important. Mm -hmm. Prior to the rescuing of Rod, she gets a rough and tumble kind of encounter 
with Freddy. And this is weird, but can I explain it this in a way that's video game-like? Go ahead. In video games, you get to the boss, and the first time you play the boss, they just destroy you. Because you have to learn a pattern to their moves. Oh, yeah. But you know what happens if you die in a video game? You just hit the X button and you start all over. It's a bit different in this movie because there is no restart. Mm -hmm. But she begins to sort of pace or learn or catch the rhythm of Freddy. Yeah, what does she tell Glenn? She's like, I'm into survival now. She's got like this survivalist like manual. So she's going to kind of put that to the test. Because mom's not worth a damn. Boyfriend can't stay awake. Dad's a cop, but they don't believe anyone, which is kind of the general rule of cops. They never believe anyone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, she's a woman. Like you said, the last girl. Literally, it's watching the last girl ascend the mountaintop of isolation with a big old strong crown and a very heavy hammer to wield against the foes that try to take her down. Yeah, that's great. Our final girl, to this extent. I think she's a little bit better of a final girl than Alice was last week, actually. And I have a a million-dollar question that I want to ask, but I don't know if this is the time to do it. We'll keep going. Let me see. Let's see how this plays out. But let's kind of just set the scene for this kind of final finale here. So we got, you know, her in the house, uh, Nancy. The windows are all have wrought iron on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, mom's all boozed out on the couch. Glenn's across again. The, yeah, Glenn's across the street on the phone. She wants to, you know, you gotta. I know who the guy is. I'm gonna go get him, but I need you to help me with with this. Mm-hmm. So his parents start picking up the phone and they take it off the hook. So she can't even call Glenn because she's getting like a busy tone. So Glenn's the next unfortunate soul here. So isn't this just not like iconic to like the nth degree? Oh yeah. And Johnny Depp gets pulled into this bed. And it's just a old faithful of blood shower again they're using the the fred astaire room again but jesus like (laughs) mom comes in to see a geyser of blood erupt from the middle of the bed and paint the entire every orifice in this place is just covered in this shower of Mm -hmm. her son's blood Mm -hmm. can i ask you a question go ahead do you like the scene when freddie calls and the bottom of the phone turns into his mouth, and he tries to make out with her. Do you mm. like that, or is that a little? Is that going a little too far for you? You see that 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 almost fits the vein of quippy, a uh, jokey Freddy a little bit, yeah. like proppy Freddy. Yeah. Um, I prefer the I prefer the menacing Freddy. Me too. Uh, so that that seems a little bit out of character compared to what he's done thus far. Remind me, is that? God, I just watched this last night. No, go ahead. But is that before or? After he kills Glenn. It was before. Because she gets there. She right. runs downstairs and she's like, Mother, let me out the house. And she's like, locked, 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 locked. Vodka, <laughs> vodka, vodka, vodka. Bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. <laughs> yeah. Sarah Marshall. Yeah. No, so she does that. Glenn gets eviscerated in his room. Yeah. And then, but it brings the authorities at least. At least. And they're all puking their guts out as I would be probably. Oh. But I think it's at this point now, I think this is a great moment for Nancy because she's finally realized everyone's screwing me right now. I can count on no one. I'm going to go to sleep. I'm going to. She turns into mom for a bit because she goes and puts mom back in bed mm-hmm. and kind of very coddles her like everything will be okay in the morning type of bit. Sets herself down to sleep and it's on. Like mm-hmm. it's it's time for dream time. Yep. So, yeah, we're kind of kind of get and everything that she's been building up all these kind of like she home alones the house a bit with all these kind of booby traps and things. She's going to play Freddy on her on on her home court. I, I'm kind of digging this. Uh. And she has a plan. Here's the basic plan. Mm-hmm. I'm going to grab him in the dream state. I'm going to wake up or you're going to wake me up. Mm-hmm. Something's going to wake me up. Dad, come in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Glenn, don't fall asleep. Mom, put down the bottle. Yep. And I'm going to drag him into reality. And then when he's here, 
we'll just blast this motherfucker and yep. that'll be the end of it. And that goes to what she said. She sets up the one. My favorite one is the sledgehammer rigged to the door. That's such a home alone trap. Such a home alone. The trap. only thing mess, missing is Joe Pesci walking through the door. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> it kind of it it. It doesn't go the way she wants, but it gets her anywhere where she drags him into reality. Yeah. Okay, into, so I'll let you and, go Yeah, in, into the house, which is, you know, the, all the traps are going off, and Freddy's chasing her. He's getting his ass kicked. Uh, but then she sets him on fire in the in the basement of the house, so it starts smoking in the in the house. So And then finally, Dad realizes finally. my house is on fire. I should go check on my daughter, even though I just broke the promise I made to her. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, keep going. So Freddy escapes, you know, the the basement and kind of hightails it upstairs. And this image was always very shocking to me, which was him like on top of the mother trying to kill her, and then they douse Freddy with the towel, and then all's left is this like corpse that like sinks into the bed. Like, damn! Like <laughs> every time I watch that, I always think, is Wes Craven's intention a pretty smart guy <clears throat> mm-hmm. to burn mom in effigy? Yeah. Yeah, like on a on a bonfire, like a pyre of regret. Yeah, like he he literally lays on her and burns her on the bed that maybe mm-hmm. Heather Langenkamp, Nancy was conceived in. Sure, as he Ooh. mounts her, <laughs> that's good. And again, like there's so many things that are sort of, and maybe I'm just reading into no, it no, no, that's but a like, lot, but maybe I'm not. No, yeah, I mean, like on writing, probably not in like the screenplay, but visually, you could totally, I think you could interpret it that way. Like, I, it's it, just how it comes across. I don't think that's a mistake. He didn't just happen into that. No. Wes, Wes Craven Mm-mm. didn't happen. Michael Bay might have happened into that. <laughs> Michael Bay has happened into it. Do you a know lot what I mean? Things. Because yeah, like, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. not a cerebral sort of approach. This is done with all of those heavy connotations. And then, you know, um, Nancy comes in to find mom ablaze with Freddy on top, and then they both disappear, and mom's just gone. Mm-hmm. And here's the weirdest thing about that: dad's dad's in tow now. Yep. Dad leaves her in the room, mm-hmm. and then to sort of further this sort of allegory to sexual depravity, if you will, what happens in the middle of bed? Literally, Freddy rises like an erection mm-hmm. under the covers. Mm-hmm. Does he not? Yeah. It's even kind of phallic looking. Yeah. Now that's going to change when the disco lights and the bed kind of light up beneath him. And yeah. I could go off on that because I think that part's pretty stupid and that shouldn't But I like happened. when he bursts out of this like this sack. Almost <laughs> out of like a condom? Yeah. Am I right? Yeah, no, you're not. Am you're, I reading too much? I don't this? think you're stretching. Like it's like it's totally there. Like visually at least. Right. Yeah. yeah. And rips out of this cocoon that's very phallic and, and prophylactic like. And now we have... Freddy, the best, the best uh, safe sex deterrent that's ever existed. Well, I mean, right. Oh yeah, it follows. You should have seen Nightmare. That's pretty funny. So let's kind of get to this ending because we had this issue a couple weeks ago with it, Chapter Two, with the killing of Pennywise through friendship, crushing his heart. I don't want to say it's as stupid as 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 that, but Nancy's going to defeat Freddy by turning its back on him. What do you think of this? I hate it. Okay. There's no way. Because, like, that's actually brought up in the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you empower it by giving it fear, blah, blah, blah. And, like, and that isn't played out to any extent the rest of the entire film. And then all of a sudden, she just turns her back on him yeah. and starts to head for the door. And he disappears. Well, shit, man, if it was that easy. Yeah. 
Should have done that right away. Yeah, I think it, it's I th- troubling. No, I think so too. It's always I've never liked the ending, and I think it's backed into a corner because probably in the middle of this, they're like, "Hey, we're this." I think we stumbled onto a good thing with this Freddy character. Mm-hmm. We can't get rid of him first of all, so we need a twist ending, which or a shock ending, which we're gonna get here. But I don't know if there's any easy way to get rid of this type of villain. You know what I mean? Maybe the ending is mm-hmm. as he approaches mom in the bed. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, mounts her. Like, because mom, mom's going to come back in just a minute, like you said. Yeah. Everything that we've seen is somehow undone in this next post-Death of Freddy sequence. Yeah, Nancy Superman's the movie. Everybody's back. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, she spins the world backwards yep. by just flying really fast. Yep. Exactly. Yeah, I think it should just end with her <clears throat> defeating him in the bedroom or in the furnace like I'm sorry, in the basement, ablaze again because then we get what we're gonna get anyway. Yeah, and you don't have to like. It was all a dream. Yeah, because that's what we get. Oh shit! It mm-hmm. was all a dream. Mm-hmm. So, yes, just set him on fire in the basement of your house. Yeah, and let that be like lock the door on him as he's calling up the stairs. Let that be the ending, and just let that be the end. Yeah, yeah. For everything that we've praised Wes Craven, I think the ending here is a bit of a misstep. But I also think it's also a difficulty too. I think he stumbled into like a great character that just unfolded before them, and we're like, Jesus, how do we kind of get rid of this guy? Yeah, it's hard to do. Like, and they've tried in the subsequent sequels find ways to kill this guy. He's gonna keep coming back. Mm-hmm. But we kind of get this ending, and it was one of multiple endings. There's actually an even more ridiculous ending where Freddy's driving the car that drives them down the road. Oh no! So the car turns into. They kind of do use that though in the bus sequence later in three though. Yeah, because he is driving the. Yeah, he's driving the bus. Yeah. So they did use that later. They did bring that back, but he is the car, so to speak. It rolls the windows up, and then it pulls Ronnie Blakely through the window, and then the little jump rope girls lullaby us out to our end credits. So after Freddy disappears, we fade to black. It's well, we don't quite, but we we fade out. We come back, and it's the next day at school, and everybody's happy. And everybody's been resurrected, and we're getting in the convertible to go to school. And I think, not Glenn's driving, but Rod is driving, and we're all the pieces are back in place, and Mom's there. Bye, honey. Don't forget your lunch. Have a great day. I love you. And then off to school, the kids go. The top of the convertible closes, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden, the windows roll up. And we know, oh my God, it's on again because we didn't do any of this. Ronnie Blakely gets ripped through the window of the front door back into the house to die. And as the car drives down the street, we see that the sweater is exactly the material that's been turned into the convertible top that's been covered on the car. Mm -hmm. So, oh my gosh, Freddy's still there. Okay, now this is a pretty common trope with all of these slasher horror films because if the villain's dead, there's no franchisability. Yeah. We, I'm, I'm fine with getting there on this. Yeah, just get there with him being burned in the basement. No, just, exactly. Just get there on that. Yeah. So, as much as but, I don't like, I, I don't like you, Freddie, and I'm not going to pay attention to you. You're gone. <laughs> I do actually kind of like the ending. Okay. I, 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 I love actually what I really. Like, they didn't need any of that. You yeah. know what they didn't need? They didn't need any of that. What should have happened is even if Heather Langenkamp is the only survivor. Mm-hmm. The car that she drives to school in has that cup. The Freddy. The top. That's his sweater. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really cool image. Yeah. 
That's all you need. It's interesting too because that whole end scene—it's all—it's all very dreamlike as well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like, mm-hmm. I know we're supposed to be awake, but are we really awake? Because like, just visually, it looks like we're still like—it's so euphoric and slow motiony and glossy that it's almost not real. Okay, so I'm going to ask you the million dollar question. Okay. Cardinal rule number one in screenwriting is what? At the end, you can't say. Can't make it all a dream. So yeah, if this has done that, <clears throat> mm-hmm. what about that for you? So I, I'm going to say, yeah, in this film, that, that idea doesn't work. And I like to pretend it doesn't exist because I know where this franchise goes. And yeah. obviously, Nancy and uh, John Saxon return for part three. And mom is dead. So I think the inevitability of what happened in that bedroom, I think that's the finality of that film. Okay. I think this is just a nice tag at the end of it okay. to allude to a future. I think that's fair. So, yeah, I think I think that's you know kind of what, what I think with this. Before we wrap up, and we usually kind of do this at the beginning. Do you remember the first time you saw this film? Mm-hmm. Like any type of like recollection of like what you thought of it? I do. Dollar Tuesday. Okay. Actually saw it in the theater. Okay. Um, they didn't pay attention to our ratings and age back then. <laughs> so we snuck in. Yeah. Saw it in the theater. There was quite the buzz. I, I, I'd sort of, you know, I knew it was out and I didn't really think I wanted to see it. And mm-hmm. then uh, me and my friend Andrew went and actually saw it in the theater. Mm-hmm. And I remember being, was the 83rd, I was 12, 13 years old. Yeah. Pretty alarmed by it. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and the theater was pretty full as much as I can remember. That's, That's a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. I actually remember the first time I saw it, it was actually Fathom Events did, this had to be like 2004. It was the 20th anniversary of Nightmare on Elm Street. They re-released it in theaters for one night only. Hmm. This first film. That's and cool. then at the end, the end credits was actually a compilation like montage of all of freddy's kills from every subsequent oh, that's, nightmare that's film. cool so it kind of gave me a taste of what came later mm-hmm. and i was like oh my god he like he not only does he get more ridiculous and more quippy but like the deaths get more ridiculous and over the top yeah. uh but it, it I, I really i was i thoroughly enjoyed watching this first film sure that's just not reality nancy it's real mama feel it Give me that damn thing. It even has his name written in it. Fred Krueger, Mom. Fred Krueger. Do you know who that is, Mother? Because if you do, you better tell me because he's after me now. Okay, Matt. Time now more than ever. Let's rate Nightmare on Elm Street. We have Rock Gut, Well, Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you with this one here? Do you ever find yourself struggling with how the film has aged from initial release sometimes to modern day viewing sometimes i really i find myself in that space a lot Mm -hmm. and i ask you know is it fair to say the movie doesn't hold up today well today wasn't when it came out and so that's what the state of film was when it came out yeah so can i'm I'm gonna give you a comparison here okay yeah i'm gonna compare nightmare to today um to the thing and today. Okay. I believe one of those films has aged a lot better than the other one has. Mm-hmm. I have to tell you, yeah. for me, mm-hmm. this first film in Nightmare, mm-hmm. some of its sins for me are paid off by the latter iterations and what this becomes yeah. up to about like three and a half way after about three and a half, midway through that fourth film, you kind of start to be like, this is just bullshit. Yeah. 
And after four, it's really hard to make a case that there's any good Freddy. Yeah, yeah. Is that fair? No, that is very fair. So I know what two and three become, and that helps pay for some of the sins of one. Mm -hmm. If one is a standalone film in the moment, Mm -hmm. it's probably well for me. For me, it's a way better talk than it is watch. Yeah. Okay? Yeah. I actually found myself saying, this is kind of silly, man. I was was kind of glad that it was over (laughs) in a lot of ways. I was wondering what you think of it because, like... I think that this film kind of has that effect on people. I mean, you hear Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger, and you, you kind of see it. You're like, yeah, it's kind of like it wasn't really scary, but like it's a little goofy at times. Yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't scary anymore. Again, I'm much older than I am now. Yeah, that genre is kind of on life support and mm-hmm. dead for a reason because nobody's found a good way to do it. Jesse, I think it's 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 just well, just well for you. Um, the legacy of it mm-hmm. probably elevates that to call and the time might take it to... Because, that, that, I mean, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked about... Like, off mic, we talked about Fright Night for a minute. Mm-hmm. And I told you that I just watched that too. Mm-hmm. The graphics in Fright Night aren't really great either, but that's just what they were. But at the time, they were awesome. Oh, yeah. So I, I can't, like, bang on the movie for that. Mm-hmm. But I can also look at the thing and say... That still works today. Yeah, damn, that's good. Yeah, John Carpenter had a budget for the thing. Mm-hmm. 1.8 isn't much. It's a budget, but not much of a budget. Yeah. I don't know. It's maybe well, well, well to well plus for okay. me. I, I don't want, ever want to watch this again. I'll speak a little bit to kind of what you said, because I'll c- kind of consider that legacy element of this film. So, okay. Um, yeah, you really you have to kind of look at like what it started, you know, one of the what we call the great horror film franchises that are, you know, with Halloween and Friday and you know, all Scream and all those things. Mm-hmm. Giving us arguably, I think maybe the greatest horror film character, could we probably make that 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 assumption possibly? Freddy. Freddy. Yeah, Freddy Krueger. Yeah. yeah. So you know, apart from, you know, you know, Robert England kind of being menacing, you know, I know, know and Johnny Depp, you know, a lot of the acting's fairly wooden and one known, not great. But uh, 1984 was an interesting year. So if I, my memory serves me right, I think this film came out the same weekend or close to Silent Night, Deadly Night. Um, Silent Night, Deadly Night actually won the weekend that that year. Mm. But that was the film that ultimately did this whole subgenre in because of its depiction of a killer Santa. And, you know, again, talking to that that Reagan America, all the mothers across America just lost their fucking minds. Sure. And that movie got killed. Jesse, the, since you what what was the release on this? Was this a winter like release? November. Yeah. November. Okay, sorry, keep going. So that was kind so of essentially a Halloween release. Yeah. So that was kind of the end of this subgenre that had birthed all these, the burning prom night, all this shit. Mm. Uh, so 84 is an interesting year, but I think Nightmare on Elm Street captured a piece of the slasher pie and propelled that into the later 80s, thus spawning other supernatural slasher franchises like Hellraiser, Child's Play, you know, kind of going like... Even Scream for Craven later. Yeah, yeah. Right? It okay. was kind of like an appetizer to kind of get into this self-referential kind of horror tropes. I right. think New Nightmare is a perfect segue for him to do Scream, this very meta horror film where Heather Langenkamp's playing herself in that film. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and it helped get New Line off the ground, and I can't stress that enough. Sure. You know me. I think Lord of the Rings is, I could theoretically call my Star Wars of my generation. Yeah. I think without this film, if you really want to get down to the that never happens the bells and whistles, I don't think I ever get that if this never 
takes off the way that it does. I think you're right. You know, for that, I'm going to go a little higher than you. I'm going to go like a single barrel minus just because of everything this first film sets up. It's not my favorite Nightmare film. I'm with you. I I love Dream Warriors and I love New Nightmare. Uh, But the character it gives us, the the legacy, uh, a win for Wes Craven. Mm -hmm. Had he bombed on this one, you know, does he follow that up with some more shit? before he gets to maybe he doesn't even get to do scream or any of those films that he gets to kind of redeem himself with again so i think it's a pretty important film in the pantheon of of horror films not my favorite nightmare but uh i think there's some things to kind of hang your hat on with this this first film freddie's first appearance on screen is important Mm -hmm. the creation of this classic iconic character Mm -hmm. And I think of the the big three, he's probably the most recognizable of the oh, three, yeah. right? Just because well, he's, although Michael and Jason don't look alike, they kind of look alike. Mm-hmm. Whereas he doesn't, he's different. Now the question we can ask is, the original in, um, state of Freddy as this menacing, foreboding kind of guy to yeah. sassy guy in three and beyond. Yeah, that's it. I'm I'm not even a. I don't know if I have a preference. In mm-hmm. either one of those. Because this Freddy, although he has a few more lines of dialogue, is more to the Michael and Jason sure. mold. Um, yeah, I, like, I, I think what this movie becomes, or what this franchise becomes, is only a, a possibility because of the original mm-hmm. intent, which is this movie. Yeah. So you have to give it at least a nod of, of respect there. So I agree with what you said there. Yeah. I'm having a hard time... I really am. Yeah. We had a whole conversation this morning about this. Yeah. About agedness and film. Yeah, it's a hard argument. And, right? It because, is. Because, like I can say, The Hustler, which is one of my all-time fivers, yeah. holds up today the same way it held up when it came out. Mm-hmm. But there's no there's no special effects in that movie. Yeah, yeah. Other than, like, the guys actually learned how to play pool. It's a harder argument when you get into these genre films. Like, Especially science fiction mm-hmm, and horror, mm-hmm, right? Those yeah. are the two that make it really tough. Because at the time, this was what the norm was. This is what, you know, the technology provided. And this is what audiences were used to. I mean, Frankenstein didn't have the same gore effects as this type of film in the 30s. Like, we, like as a genre, horror has to build up to something like this. In Frankenstein, though, the special effects of the time were the laboratory sequence mm-hmm. and the throwing of this lever and some spark shoot. But even Jack Pierce's makeup, that was shocking in and of itself. But doesn't that still hold up today? I think it holds up. I, are, is it an argument? Are we calling it, like cheesy looking or like yeah like it's i yeah i don't i don't i don't know but it's so this conversation we're having is what i keep having with about this movie like you can't bang on the movie for like well it looks like shit now because yeah like i mentioned it the erection of freddy in the bed Mm -hmm. with the disco lights behind like the bed on like disco light 1980s sort of (laughs) disco it's ridiculous like neon no i know what you mean um but that's that's how it was done then yeah so what are you going to say, like, oh, you know, that's bullshit, because that, well, <laughs> compared to what in 1985? Yeah. But yeah. I think what you just said is, like, I think you're kind of solidifying where I might be going with this later. Mm-hmm. We'll see. I'm not going to do it today. Yeah. Frankenstein, mm-hmm. 1931, mm-hmm. is a really good example of how mm-hmm. less might be more. Yeah. But, sh- but, okay, and so one more hedging my bets, and then I'll be done here. Yeah. There is no less is more yeah. in slasher horror. Especially in 84. Right. Because we've gotten to the point where we have to show more for people to go see it. 
So yeah, I don't know. It's a, it's it's an interesting argument, and uh, I don't even know where I'm at on it. Yeah, I don't know. That's that's probably a conversation for another day. How do you gauge yeah like how a film looks? I guess how you should kind of rate is did you and enjoy aspect did you enjoy yourself while watching this this film like, there were a couple points yeah mostly again i'm defending my argument which i already gave like my grade i was mostly glad this movie was over and i am in no hurry to ever want to watch this one again but i do mm-hmm. really want to go watch two and three yeah. so then that's, that's failure and success at the same yeah. time right it's I'm a mess it's, it's, it's a very complicated rating from you mm-hmm. <laughs> But let's kind of get into, let's wrap up the episode with a flight question. Uh, uh, not flight, sorry. Nightcap okay. question yeah. to okay. send us out to next week. Robert Egan played this character for seven, I don't think, I think eight films because this one does not include um, Freddy versus Jason. So he had a good handle on this character, especially as he gets more quippy and he develops more of a personality. A hard character to recast. And as much as I love Jack Earl Haley... Yeah, I don't think that film works because I think it's 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 missing a charisma that I think England eventually brings to this role. So this is hard to do in film, and I know, especially in superheroes, we're gonna we're gonna have a new Wolverine at some point and a new Tony Stark, like Robert Pattinson. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> okay, so those ones are interesting because we've had multiple Bonds, multiple Batman, uh, and I've seen it work many different times. Yeah. So my question to you, Matt, is who's the hardest film character to recast? Like, who do you have a hard time seeing? I can never see any other person other than this person playing this person. I'm going to answer your question with the question back to you, and then I'll get to it. Do you agree with this statement? Okay. Robert De Niro is a good actor. Yes. Yeah, I agree with that, Mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. That being said, the most impossible character to recast in a film for me is Robert Mitchum's Max Cady mm. and Cape Fear. So you're going with a film that's already done this. Yeah. If you've never seen the original Cape Fear, if you want to witness the best sexual deviant that has ever been done in film, you have to go see Cape Fear. Mm-hmm. And the reason I asked you the question with De Niro. Mm-hmm. Is he's later going to play this same character with Scorsese at the helm in absolute garbage in a fucking <laughs> awful film? Robert Mitchum, like we talked about, yeah, um, you know Val Luton last week mm-hmm. with uh, Cat People, yeah. Well, we're going to see him, the same director, not Luton, but uh, Tonier, mm-hmm. with Robert Mitchum and Out of the Past. Yeah. And what's the best film noir that no one ever talks about? That's a good one. I've seen that one. Oh, so good. Mm-hmm. Because Robert Mitchum's really good, man. Yep. When when Robert Mitchum's allowed to be good. Yeah. Um, like, I don't particularly love Night of the Hunter, and that's kind of the one that everybody talks about. Yeah. There's a couple moments. But, I like Cape Fear. Oh, my God. How can anyone not like Cape Fear? And you yeah. could argue that's a horror film. I think that's horror. Yeah. It's certainly hard, hard, scary thriller. Yeah. So, to me, Max Cady is one of those characters that could never be recast. Mm-hmm. And especially what works on that is... The historical element. We've had many of years to do it, and we've seen it with De Niro taking on the same character, and it just completely doesn't work. A close second mm-hmm. for me in this okay. is Anthony Hopkins's Hannibal Lecter. Mm, good. Very close. But um, I'm going to go with Robert Mitchum's Max Katie. Impossible to recast. You tell me you don't like uh, uh, a book, uh, uh, dips, uh, shoulder dips. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. 
Well, they, they definitely. Kessler, you just put the law in my hands, and I'm gonna break yeah, your you go. heart with it. Let me oh see. my god. Let me see if I can do my best Gregory Peck here. Okay. Max Cady. Very good. <laughs> I made, lo- a, made a write a lot of dirty. Words. I love Gregory. Gregory Peck is actually one of my all-time favorite actors. So that movie, you know, what I love about the yeah. As much as I hate the new version, mm-hmm. those dudes are all in it. Mm-hmm. They're all paying. They're all playing like different parts. Yeah, a, a smaller side piece. Side note. Side quest. Talk about a year for Gregory Peck. Nineteen sixty-two. He did Cape Fear and To Kill a Mockingbird. Like slam dunk. Yeah, double. Yeah, very slam dunk. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm actually going to go with a role that hasn't had a remake yet, or and I, I, I just can't see anyone playing this character ever again. I can see multiple actors playing James Bond. like they, They've done it. Same thing with Batman. You know how close I am to both those characters. Sure. And there's some I like and some I don't. But there's one character I can't see ever recasted in my time, and who could ever play it better than Sylvester Stallone? It's Rocky Balboa. Yeah. You know, we talk a lot about, we've mentioned him before of like, you know, he plays aloof very well, but Stallone's not a stupid man. He's no. a very smart writer and director. He knows what he's doing, but the character of Rocky Balboa isn't the smartest, you know, um, you know, brick in the wall. Uh, he's he's had some hard times and he has to kind of get by with brute strength. Um, I think there's a, a lot of charisma that Stallone brings to that role of... You know, stupidity, but played for humility and ultimately wanting us to get behind the underdog and all of those films. So if they ever, and I'm sure they will at some point in my life, try to be like, hey, we need a new, we need to do Rocky again with a new actor. Good luck. Like, I don't think, I don't think you can do it. I, that, that almost has to be one that's like untouchable. It better be. Yeah. I thought about Hannibal Lecter too. And I know they did Hannibal Rising with some unknown actor that I had never heard of. And that film's not great because Hopkins embodies such a presence as that character. He's in that first film for but 15, 17 minutes, but you feel his weight. And even in Hannibal, and I think Hannibal is a shitty movie. Yeah, and and too. Red Dragon. Me too. But like this tattoo on my back. Look at me. Yeah, but oh my God. I don't think you can deny like Hopkins like screen persona as that character. Like he's just like just the way he kind of looks. And he's a genius, but like underneath that genius is such a psychopath of unbelievable tendencies. Impossible to recast. In the expanse of film that you have inside of you, okay. there are certain people. That I know you have to consider, and we can talk about Laurence Olivier, and we can talk about Marilyn Monroe, and we can talk about. I could go on and on yeah. about these characters that were so important for a movie to be what it is today. But I'm going to ask you a question. Okay. Take that same place where you're at right now. What movie is today? Okay. And I'm going to ask you to remove two people. Okay. And tell me how much it changes it, and it's rhetorical. Okay. I want you to take out Harrison Ford, and I want you to take out Sylvester Stallone. The '80s is just a dud now. You know what You've I mean? You've lost so much. Like, and we can talk about. Well, this one person won three. You could even put John yeah. Wayne in there. Yeah. John, Jimmy Stewart in there. Yeah. Tom Cruise in there. Mm-hmm. But you take out those two guys and the characters that that then they played. Jesse, mm-hmm. man, that film is a lot different in conversation between you and me. Yeah. Today. I um, I didn't pick Indiana Jones because I think they could do that with that character. Like potentially do that with a different actor which was what they should have done in the 80s if they wanted to continue this series and that we've seen a different han solo so i I can't make that jones solo ryan uh rambo and rocky you take out those five guys yeah yeah 
It's Who's left? Mel Gibson? It's a lot of films. Uh, but what I wanted to say was uh, one of the lists I kind of stumbled across was Empire Magazine, at their magazine out of London, uh, their top 100 film characters. Number one was Indiana Jones. Number three was Han Solo. Like, yeah. shit. Like, yeah. That says a lot right there. Yeah. I think number two was James Bond. Come on. But, yeah, you got one actor playing both of those in the top three. Like, that's, yeah, that's pretty significant. Mm-hmm. So, no, that's great. This has been a fun episode talking about Freddy, Nightmare on Elm Street on this slasher film bandwagon. But, Matt, we got a big film coming up next week. Boy, don't we, for you especially. (laughs) As I said, it's the tippy-tippy top of my top shelf. Mm -hmm. It's there with the Pappy Van Winkle. Yeah. 1978, John Carpenter's Halloween. Um, You want to say anything before we head out this week? Uh, spoiler alert, mm-hmm. I think you all can probably surmise where this is going to be for Jesse on mm-hmm. the rankings. Mm-hmm. But I have to say this. Look, yeah. I'm not, I'm not going to lie either. Like, I love that film too. Yeah. And having in the last two weeks watched the two films that we've watched, mm-hmm. it only solidified for me mm-hmm. how fucking brilliant Halloween is. Mm-hmm. What a masterpiece that movie is. Mm-hmm. I can't wait to break this down with you next week. Yeah. Um, and the million-dollar question that I teased out earlier. Yeah. I'm going to get, that's what I want to be our flight next week. Okay. Okay. It's not a top three. It's like, what if? Okay. It's kind of a what if. So okay. we're going to do that, tease everybody out. But Jesse, I, I can't wait to just do an hour plus yeah. on Halloween with you. I can't. I, me, me, me too. I, I'll, I'm going to talk about how I came into this film and kind of what it's done for me in my life, like just like inspiration wise and the story behind the making of it. Man, I've even taken you too in Hollywood. I've yeah. taken you to the houses where they filmed this movie. Was I really sweaty when we went that time? <laughs> Maybe we can tell that story. Next we'll week tell too. that. We'll tell the LA story about that. But between that, you know, the poster and just you know everything that Halloween offers, it's going to be a fun, a fun discussion. And yeah, yeah. Cheers to that. I got to get going. I'm going to go try and get some sleep. I'm a little tired. I hope I don't see Freddy because if I do, I'm just going to let him just eviscerate me. <laughs> well, set your alarm because in 20 minutes when you need me to call you and wake you up, I'm not going to do it. Excellent. Excellent, everybody. Thank you for all the downloads, all the hits, all the, the feedback on social media. We love you all. Rye Nation. Uh, until next time, we'll see you next week. God bless, everybody. Have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, Stitcher, and leave us an email at Productions at gmail.com. A Nightmare on Elm Street is property of New Line Cinema, Media Home Entertainment, and Smart Egg Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. I want my mother and friend again. What? I take back every bit of energy I gave you. You're nothing.